Well, if you'd open up your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 17, or almost, you're, you're basically opening it up to chapter 18, because what we're going to be looking at are the last three verses of the 17th chapter. And so if, if 18 is kind of your, the mark that you're looking for, and then you just go three verses earlier, you'll find it pretty quick. Now, last Sunday, uh, we talked about eagles, and we talked about kings. Uh, we talked about parables and metaphors and riddles. And we are continuing that. We are still in. This is kind of the, 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 the tail end, no pun intended, eagle and tail, but the tail end of this parable, of this proverb of what is happening. I told you that the Lord was telling Ezekiel what was going to happen in the future. He was giving him a, a prophetic picture of what the future was going to look like. That this great big eagle, King Nebuchadnezzar, was going was to uh, snatch up the branch, which had already happened. Uh, that is the first exiles, is, is the branch, the first exiles to go to Babylon but then that he would come back because King Zedekiah broke his word and broke his covenant with an evil king, that there would be judgment on King Zedekiah. And what I uh, tried with the Lord's help to make clear to you uh, last Sunday is that the Lord cares about the vows we make and whether or not we keep our word, even if it's, uh, in, in Zedekiah's case, even if it's an oath with an evil king, uh, that instead of trusting in the Lord and, in essence, obeying the ninth commandment, Zedekiah turned to the Pharaoh of Egypt for help, uh, and that turned out to be a false hope. And so we, we pick it up with the Lord telling uh, Ezekiel that the destruction of Jerusalem is going to come, that Zedekiah's hopes will not hold out. Thus says the Lord God, thus says the Lord Yahweh, I myself, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree, make the dry tree flourish. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And we say... Thanks be to God. So, again, if you'll remember from the earlier part of this chapter, the eagle comes along and plants this vine, and the vine starts stretching out its roots toward the little eagle, that is Egypt. And what is, how does the Lord respond? He responds by promising judgment, but then he promises that he's going to come along and pluck a bit uh, off this cedar and plant a tree himself. And so I have titled this sermon, The Almighty Arborist, The God Who Plants Trees. Where we started is at the eagle's Nebuchadnezzar. Where we ended up now, verse 22, is that the eagle is Yahweh. That's weird. We started with the, 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 the eagle is an evil king, and now the Lord's saying he's the one that's going to take the, take, take the uh, branch off the tree. Now, that's not saying Nebuchadnezzar is God, and not even, really not even that the parable is changing its point. But basically that God in heaven is saying, I'm the one who's doing all of this, right? So, so yes, Nebuchadnezzar's doing it. And yes, it looks like he's the one who's calling the shots and he's in control. And he really does have an office and authority that I've given to him. I'll call him the, the, the great big eagle, right? Because that's who he is to you. But here's the Lord saying, but, but I'm actually the one who plucks bits off of trees. Read verse 22. I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one. I myself if you missed it. We'll plant it on a high and lofty mountain. Now that made me think, why did God choose here to talk about kingdoms? 
Why? Because here's what the Lord could have done, if you want to put it that way. The Lord could have just said, Ezekiel, Zedekiah done wrong. He was, he's being really stupid. He's a liar, and I'm going to take him out. Instead, he, he, he uses this parable, this word picture language, to talk about not just Zedekiah, but, but about Nebuchadnezzar as well. The, the, the big bad, okay? That's the best way I can put it. Nebuchadnezzar's name never gets associated with like good things other than the few moments in Daniel when in stunned loss, as in, as in the God of heaven has the victory and Nebuchadnezzar looks like a fool, Nebuchadnezzar starts praising that God. But I think on one level this tells us, at the very least, God really does care and have some things to say about political power in this world. Right? Hopefully you'll allow me that. That, that, that since Nebuchadnezzar, for most of chapter 17, is kind of the star of the show and what's happening, and he's the one making the decisions and guiding and directing it all, the Lord cares very much about political powers in the world and what they do. If you've ever read Psalm 2, you know that Psalm 2 tells us that the Lord might care about the political powers even as he laughs at them while they think they're the ones in control and they think they're so important. So on one level, a text in the parable like the one we have here in chapter 17 tells us that God cares about what happens in politics, about kings and rulers and governors and presidents and mayors. One commentator even observed that King Zedekiah, the way, I love the way he put it, he said, King Zedekiah is falling under Yahweh's judgment because of his pro-Egyptian policies. <laughs> well, that's certainly a way of putting it, that, that, that King Zedekiah is trying to trust in Egypt and, and lead the nation in that direction. But I also think that the Lord here, through Ezekiel, is, is what's happening is that God is, as it were, plucking the, the one thing that I think seems to you and me to be most godlike to us other than God, which is the state, and who's in power, and who's in control, and who gets to say, I determine this and how it's going to happen. That feels so significant. I don't have to sell that to you, because every four years we get reminded that, every, that, that a whole lot of people care a whole lot about who is in the White House. This thing feels most significant. And even if you don't live in a constitutional republic, even if you live under an absolute monarchy, you care about politics, and when there's a changing of the guard, you might say, so to speak, it can be really scary. It brings with it a lot of consequences. It feels really unpredictable. It makes you feel vulnerable to manipulation and to abuse. What is the Lord saying here? I'm the one who decides it. Okay? Just on a basic, kind of baseline level, fundamentally, that's what the Lord is saying here. Right? He's the one who's plucking and planting. And we know from earlier in the parable what that means is who's in power, who's in control. You see, the Lord, theologians in Christian history have talked about the, this thing called the three estates. So the three estates that God has uh, put on the earth and blessed with a measure of authority. Okay? The family the church, and the state, or the government. And he's given each three of these, these estates, each three of these places, you might say, and, and people within them, a measure of authority to take care of certain things. And ever since then, it's tended to be that the three estates get confused and try to take over each other's responsibilities. It tends to be that because the state is the smallest of those, there's a reason why it comes last in the three, it's because it's smallest in terms of importance, and so it has tended to be in history that, like the, um, like the little brother who has something to prove, it's going to be the one that tries to gain importance the most over the other two. The state is ever and always under the temptation to be a god and to assert itself as the only meaningful authority. This has happened to such an extent 
that some Christians even have stopped believing functionally in the estates of church and family, and they act like the, the state is the only authority that's left on this world. It's interesting that the relationship then between Christians and their government is not a simplistic one. It's not, um, it is one that at times can be complicated, but it can be understood. I want to make that clear. If you have questions, for example, about a lot, I mean, a lot of questions right now are surrounding kind of what the role of Christians is in response to the state. Um, I've, I've talked a little bit about that before. I've also put it into a, a letter some months ago to all of you about some of the challenges we're facing in the pandemic. What I do want to say is that um, in the midst of decisions being made about, about mandates and requirements and things like that, a lot of people are having questions about these things called religious exemptions. Uh, and just as a pastor, what I'm going to say about that is if you have questions about religious exemptions for mandates that are coming down from on high, I would love to talk to you. I'm not suggesting that all Christians need to assert a religious exemption right now, but I am saying if you are looking to, come talk to me. Um, I'd, I'd like to help you. Now, the Bible teaches that God is more sovereign than we want him to be. That's part of what we see in our text here. Now, God's more sovereign sometimes than we'd like because to assert that God is the one plucking and planting means we also have to trust him when things go really bad. Now, the Bible teaches that God is more sovereign sometimes than we think and that we're more responsible than we'd like to be. And we usually get one or both of those messed up. It is frightening to trust a God with authority over everything, everything, everything that is on heaven and on earth. It means you have to trust him, for example, with your suffering. And that's a lot of what's happening in Ezekiel, I hope you've noticed, is that the Lord is basically saying, I know that everything looks bad, and you refuse to come to me. It's going to get worse. But the only hope for a lost and exiled people is that God actually has a plan for them to do something about it. The only hope you have in the midst of difficulty, of hurt, of suffering, of pain, is that God is, is, is doing something about it and with it. And maybe it's not given to you to know what that is, dear saints. But you are called to trust him in the midst of it. What do we see in the next verse? Look at it with me. He says, On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, this, this bit that he's plucked up from the cedar, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a, a royal tree, a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. So God takes a small twig and turns it into a gigantic tree. The almighty arborist plants things and they grow. And just as an aside, I, I note in passing, God really seems to love trees. I mean, you think about it, we begin with trees in the garden. There's this one called the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in giving us a, a picture of what growth looks like. We, we go to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, we hear, we hear more about this and, and, and a, another metaphor of a tree is presented to us. We are blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What's going to happen with this prosperous tree, though? When it comes to the wicked, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Oh, sorry, when it comes to the righteous, the Lord knows their way, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish, the way in which they go. So God's people grow like trees. So if you ever feel like your growth in grace 
what we call sanctification, is happening painfully slowly, maybe even imperceptibly. Be encouraged. Because it's not really often, uh, I mean, if it is often, then talk to me afterward, but it's not really often you go outside and you're like, I can see that tree's growing fast. No, you cannot. Right? That's the point of a tree growing. It, it takes a lot of time. So it is with you and I. That the Lord plants us like trees and brings forth fruit in season. And at the end of all things, in the book of Revelation, we're actually brought back to the beginning. God says, the angel, John tells us, the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. In other words, enough to keep feeding you for all eternity. The leaves of the tree, oh, you've got to love this, were for the healing of the nations. That's what God is growing. Now, the Lord often uses people. This, this God who loves trees, right, this almighty arborist says he's the one engaged in the work of planting and making sure the tree bears fruit. He often uses human beings, you and I, to do his work, right? The eagle was Nebuchadnezzar, who in spite of his evil, God used to accomplish his purposes. Uh, you might also be familiar with the moment in the epistles where, where Paul says that, uh, that he planted and Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the growth. So God uses people. He uses the righteous and the wicked to accomplish his ends because he's planting where he wants. What is unique about this tree, we just read it a moment ago, is that it's going to start spreading out. It's going to be large enough, okay, not just to, to take care of Israel in the moment. It's gonna, the idea is it's going to cover the forest such that all the birds, all of them, can come and find shelter. In other words, the Lord is at work cultivating and growing a tree that's going to overshadow and cover the entire forest, indeed, the entire world. And one of the, this is one of the most remarkable things about life in God's kingdom, that it does not do what you expect. It starts out really small, the kingdom of God does, and then gradually it conquers the entire world. It conquers the entire world. This is what the Lord is doing. Jesus himself said exactly this in Matthew chapter 13, by the way. Some of the language we've used so far might be familiar to you. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed a man took and sowed in his field, smallest of the seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that what? The birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Jesus is quoting from Ezekiel. And, and the point is, is that the kingdom of God is growing. Often you don't see it. Maybe it doesn't feel like it. But the kingdom of God is growing, and it is going to conquer the world, beloved. Why? Because the leaves of the tree are for the healing of all of the nations. This has always been God's objective from the beginning, to bring in all of the nations under the tree of his son, Jesus, the Messiah. If you haven't caught it yet, what's happening in Ezekiel here at the end of chapter 17 is a messianic prophecy. As Ezekiel, as it were, looks down uh, time and sees a day when the Lord's going to plant a tree that's going to be a kingdom, that's going to dwarf all of the other trees and cover the entire forest. And why does the Lord do this? Let's go to verse 24. Back to our text this morning. Why does the Lord do this? All the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. That's why. This has always been God's objective. If you wonder... Well, I mean, was, you know, Pastor, wasn't it true that in the Old Testament, God was just mainly concerned about Israel knowing him? And, and then, you know, it's when we get to the New Testament that God gets a bit nicer. 
and brings in all the nations. No, no, a thousand times no. God has always been bringing in the nations, and he's been using Israel to do it. What does Israel mean? It means those who wrestle with God. That's, that's what Israel means. And so it has been throughout all of history that God's people wrestle with him in the most blessed sort of way to know him, to be broken by their sin, and to be re redeemed and restored. Sometimes at great cost to them. The Lord says, I'll do it because I will do everything. And again, what do we see? I make high the low tree. I bring low the high tree. In other words, I'm doing things that you don't expect. I'm going to plant my son right in the middle of a stable. I bet you don't see that coming. Right? And his kingdom's going to grow until it overtakes the entire planet. God is in charge, to go back to an earlier point, that means God is in charge of every single blessed and unblessed political machination in the world. God is in charge of it all. He's promised us that everything is in his hands, and then he's promised us not to be afraid. Do you know what, do you know what marvelous power and liberty there is there? To live under the fatherhood of God who has all things in his hands and then he commands you not to be afraid. I mean, think about it another way. If, if you are given the news that there is a God of the universe who rules over everything and then the last bit you're given is also he's really irritable. Don't mess up. That's not good news. But when the, when the Lord who owns everything and runs everything and works everything together for his glory and for the good of his people says, when that God says, don't be afraid. Oh. Well, I can actually believe him. And I can actually let go of the things that I cannot control that would otherwise consume all of me, my attention and my time, and I can actually get on with the work of loving my neighbors, the work of repenting of my sin, of, of crucifying the things that would otherwise kill me, right? The, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the things that want to ruin me. And instead, so often, brothers and sisters, we, we just surrender to like fear and anxiety and trying to predict the future and, and get a grip on everything that's going to happen. And all that time and, that we've been given to, to love our neighbors, just we, we deposit it into our fears. Daniel Block, he's, a, uh, he's an Old Testament scholar, and I, I love one of the things he says about this text. He says, Yahweh remains sovereign over history. When his people experience calamity, his hand is in it. When foreign nations sweep down on them, they come as his agents. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if a foreign nation was going to come in and wreck things for us, that they'd be coming as God's agents? That's hard. No nation has ever become so powerful that the Lord Almighty cannot bring it down in a moment. And no people are so low that he cannot exalt them to heights beyond what they dream. By his providence, he governs human affairs so that the schemes of the wicked are frustrated and his own objectives are always achieved. That's good. This is the confidence that we live under. That our God has revealed his will to us. We call that the Bible. He's told us to walk in it. He's given us commands and he's given us his forgiveness, his promises. And he has a perfect plan of what he intends to do with the world. Now, by the way, I hasten to add, that perfect plan, he keeps most of it secret. Okay? So I'm not, if you're not a Christian and you're in here today and you're thinking, wow, okay, so God has a plan, God has a plan, he's in control. So like as Christians, do you guys have like secret access to what that plan is? No, we don't. We, we know how the story ends. There's this thing called the book of Revelation. If you read it, you find out how the story ends. Jesus wins. It's really cool. It is. But this is why prophetic books are so kind of really weird and impressive and unique. That what, what, what happens in, in books like Ezekiel is, is the curtain gets pulled back. And God tells his people, this is precisely what I'm going to do. 
This is precisely how it's going to happen. And some people believe, some people live as though it is their job to discern all of the secret things of God and to figure out all of what the enemy is doing and to spend their lives as God's little code decipherers gaining secret access and secret knowledge. It's simply not what we've been called to. What God does, again, he works in ways contrary to our understanding. Makes the high tree low, brings low the high tree, dries up the green one, makes dry the, the, the tree that's flourishing. We say, or sometimes we're tempted to say, God, if you're really God, God, if you are really God, this is how you will behave, and this is how you will act. Okay? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then God be praised. But, but sometimes we are tempted to tell God how he's going to act and behave, and this is what you will bless. And, and, and the, I think the Lord in his mercy basically says, I've given you enough information to know that you ought to think twice before saying that, because he often works in ways that are contrary to what we expect, Yeah? So like when we start making predictions, don't forget this. Martin Luther called this the theology of the cross. That, that for the Christian, like the way up is down, the way down is up, and because God's always doing things the opposite of what we expect. I mean, God says, I'm going to save them. And we think, oh, triumph. And God says, naked, bleeding man on a cross. Oh. And so, then maybe a good question for us to confront together and to ask of each other, what do you expect of God these days? Not your demands of God, but your expectations. Very different things. Do you, do you serve the God, let me put it this way, do you serve the God whose great gift to you, whose great sovereign gift to you, is to make your bad days a little better? Your bad days a bit more tolerable, and your good days just a little more sunshiny. Too often that's been the God, I think, that we've preached about. The God that we've talked about, the God we've sung about, the God we put on coffee mugs and t-shirts. It's the God who makes my first world problems a little bit more tolerable. And who makes my sunshine days, well, just a bit more common. That is a, what I'm going to call that, that's a gospel of the flatlands. There are no mighty mountains there that you have to scale. Right? He says, I'm going to pluck that branch and plant it on top of a mountain. Obviously, that's Mount Zion, Jerusalem language. Different from the gospel of the flatlands that knows no mountains. In the flatlands, there are no trees that overtake the entire forest. And cause the other trees, that's the first part of that verse, to come alive. And from elsewhere in prophetic literature to come alive and to clap their hands. Ours is not a gospel of the flatlands. Ours is a gospel of the mountains and the forests of a God who stoops down to pluck mighty kings like they are weeds. And who plants new kingdoms and new covenants that look small and humble and they conquer the earth. You see, God himself, God himself planted a tree in Bethlehem and in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And that has led to a lot of unexpected things. God planted a tree on Mount Zion by having a man crucified on Mount Calvary. It certainly seemed to everyone there that this was the work of the big eagles of the day, right? Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin who despised him. But they had no idea that as the Son of God died on a tree, contrary to all appearances, God the Father was planting a tree that would grow to cover the entire forest. His kingdom is growing every day, dear saints, regardless of what you see. Do not trust your eyeballs. And one day he will return, and we will face the judgment, and either we will find ourselves under the tree, under the shade and protection of Jesus Christ, or we will be exposed to the heat of divine judgment. And the Lord Jesus, the King who comes in peace and in meekness, says that we will burn like trees that are dead 
C.S. Lewis once used the analogy of a sculptor's shop. He said, but rather than, so think just for a moment, not forest full of trees, but imagine sculptor's shop full of statues. And he said, a man who, who changes from having this ordinary earthly life to the, to the, spirit, to the, to the spiritual, Holy Spirit-filled life that God gives, Lewis called it Zoe life, would have gone through as big a change as a statue which has changed from being carved stone to being a real man. And that is precisely what Christianity is about. The world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues, and there is a rumor going around that some of us are going to come to life someday. You have been called to tell all the other trees of the forest that one day they're going to live again because they will find themselves under the shade and protection and comfort of the one who died on a tree on Mount Calvary 2,000 years ago so that we would never again fear sin or death or the devil or Egypt or pharaohs or presidents or mandates or conspiracies or anything else because he brings low the high things and he exalts the things that the world would call low. It's exactly what he did with his son who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be clutched and grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is... Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Our Father, you are in heaven, we are on earth, and so we ask that you would open our eyes to see how small that makes us. And to see how amazing it is that the creator of the worlds would stoop down to rescue us and call us sons. The Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Help us, we pray, as we seek to know you, as we seek to trust you in the midst of so many opportunities to be afraid. Oh God, our Savior and Redeemer, let us not forget who you are and what you have done that it is you who are sovereign over all things, that you bring low what is high. You dry up what seems to flourish. You make flourish what seems to have no hope because you are the Lord. You have spoken and you will do it. And in response, we simply say, Amen.